0: It's just all throughout the literature that such systems, the highest energy cost comes from the communication that is required between these components. The fact that these components have limited access to information, not only from their environment, but also from each other, we want to try to clarify that.
1: Information theory, as that term, is commonly used in all the sciences, frankly, outside of engineering is the introductory chapter for the freshman textbook. It is not Shannon coding theory. It's not about code books. It's not really about information capacity. It's got nothing to do with the full on richness. People will love to talk about callback library divergence, mutual information, entropy. You'll see it all over the place. That ain't information theory, folks, any more than something like being able to solve a linear algebra equation is calculus.
2: Communication is a physical process. It's common sense that sending and receiving intelligible messages takes work, but how much work? The question of the relationship between energy, information, and matter is one of the deepest known to science. There appear to be limits to the rate at which communication between two systems can happen, but the search for a fundamental relationship between speed, error, and energy, among other things. Promises insights far deeper than merely whether we can keep making faster internet devices. Strap in and consider slowing down for a broad and deep discussion on the bounds within which our entire universe must play. Welcome to Complexity, the official podcast of the Santa Fe Institute. I'm your host, Michael Garfield, and every other week we'll bring you with us for far-ranging conversations with our worldwide network of rigorous researchers developing new frameworks to explain the deepest mysteries of the universe. This week we speak with SFI professor David Wolpert and MIT physics PhD student Farita Tasnim, who have worked together over the last year on pioneering research into the nonlinear dynamics of communication channels. In this episode, we explore the history and ongoing evolution of information theory and coding theory, what the field of stochastic thermodynamics has to do with limits to human knowledge and the role of noise in collective intelligence. Be sure to check out our extensive show notes with links to all of our references and more at complexity.simplecast.com. If you value our research and communication efforts, please subscribe, rate, and review us at Apple Podcasts or Spotify. And consider making a donation or finding other ways to engage with us, including a handful of open postdoctoral fellowships, at santafe.edu engage. Lastly, this weekend, October 22nd and 23rd, is the return of our Interplanetary Festival. Join our YouTube live stream for two full days of panel discussions, keynotes, and bleeding-edge multimedia performances focusing space exploration through the lens of complex systems science. The fun begins at 11 a.m. Mountain Time on Saturday and ends at 6 p.m. Mountain Time on Sunday. Everything will be recorded and archived at the streaming link in case you can't tune in for the live event. Learn more at interplanetaryfest.org. Thank you for listening. All right, David Wolpert, Farita Tasnim. It is a pleasure to have you both on Complexity Podcast.
1: Thanks
2: for having
0: us. Thank you, Michael.
2: So, David, we've had you on the show before. Uh, Farita, we have not. I imagine we've got a lot of Wolpert fans in the audience. So I'm especially excited to introduce (laughs) (laughs) you because I met you, Farita, through the graces of your collaboration with... David, that we're going to talk about today. So if we can, I'd just like to have you introduce yourself and give a bit of a a background into your work as a scientist and then what brought you up to SFI. Mm
0: -hmm. Uh, Yeah, so I'm a grad student at MIT, um, actually with a background in electrical engineering and did my master's in biomedical engineering before I realized that I want to be spending more time trying to understand the principles by which living systems can exist and maintain themselves. And kind of got introduced to SFI randomly through one of the education uh, initiatives here, the Complexity Interactive. And then uh, got introduced to David Wolpert, when someone noticed that I was asking lots of questions about non-equilibrium statistical physics and started working with David soon thereafter, around the end of 2020. And now I'm doing my PhD with David and uh, studying essentially what are the features of the organization of the components of a living system that allow them to yeah, to, that allow them to perform kind of insane computations, predicting the future, uh, etc. So and, and adjusting their actions accordingly. And yeah, so that's what we'll we'll talk some about that today.
2: For sure. And before we get to the uh, the paper that I want to discuss, I you you also sent me this piece by Vijay Balasubramanian, who's also with us here at the Institute and he's got this this paper, Heterogeneity, heterogeneity and Efficiency in the Brain. Uh, I just wanna read a short piece from the introduction here because I feel like for those that are not familiar with this particular domain of questions, this one, uh, this kind of sums it up really well. He says, energetically, the brain is the most expensive tissue in the body. It is 2% of body weight, but 20% of metabolic load more expensive per gram than muscle when you are working out, suggesting there will be evolutionary pressure toward computational efficiency. On the other hand, the brain consumes a mere 12 to 20 watts of power, about the same as a refrigerator light bulb, and uses this to nearly beat supercomputers at chess, produce art and music, store memories of a lifetime, experience emotions like love and anger, learn from experience, and build skyscrapers and nanoscale devices alike. How? Does it manage to do all this on such a meager budget? Uh, Okay, so having set the stage with that profound question, I'd like to ask you, David, because you've done quite a bit of work in this area. Um, We didn't talk about it much when we had you on the show last, but you've got quite a bit of research that we'll link to and, and you've been given this years of thought already. So if you'd be so kind, I'd love to hear you talk a little bit about the history of of this area, the thermodynamics of computation. It's certainly something that extends beyond the brain to all kinds of technological areas. But yeah, uh, how did you get into this and why? And how much have things changed since you first started pursuing this research?
1: Okay, that's a tall order. So there's another aspect to thermodynamics of computation. It's viewed by many physicists as an actually far more fundamental, profound part of the fabric of reality than merely how biological systems operate and how we might engineer devices and such practical um, uh, trivialities. There's this famous phrase from John Wheeler back in the mid-20th century, it from bit. The notion that somehow all of reality was nothing more than a manifestation of, in some non-trivial sense, information processing. Through the 20th century, that theme was picked up. People, um, Dave Deutsch, um, following up on Richard Feynman and so on and so forth, started talking about quantum computation, introducing the notion. Interestingly, Dave's, one of his motivations was to try to actually give some kind of formal rigor to the notion of the physical church Turing thesis that nothing in the physical world can actually perform a computation that's more powerful than the Turing machine. But in any case, it seems that, in many regards, that particular focus of physicists has been most successful when they've been thinking about statistical physics, because statistical physics... Compared to conventional physics, it's all about ignorance of the human being, not about nothing intrinsic to the system, like in quantum mechanics or anything like that, but rather it's to the experimentalists. What do they know and what can they actually access? There are some deep aspects of statistical physics that really serve to emphasize that you might have information about a system which would have profound thermodynamic benefits if you only had a device on your tabletop experiment that could actually exploit that information. You might know things about uh, this famous one called the Gibbs paradox. You might know that in a container, there's a whole bunch of red particles on one side and blue particles on the other side. If you had a filter that could be selective and only allowed red particles through, you could exploit that information to gain power, to gain energy, that you could then use for other things. But if you have that information and don't have such a filter, it's as though you didn't have it in the first place. So there's this really deep notion in statistical physics that's not just partly, it reflects your ignorance, but going even further, it also reflects not just constraints on what you know, but constraints on what you can actually do, how you can access the real world. So anyway, from a high level, it's because of that, where those aspects of statistical physics, that it's not too surprising that the um, research program of trying to find the relationship between information processing and physics has borne the most fruit in that particular domain. Even so though, it's been an extraordinarily challenging problem to make progress in. In the 20th century, people only had access to equilibrium statistical physics and some small variants where you are either close to equilibrium or you are stuck in a local equilibrium. They did some amazing things with this. Parisi won his Nobel Prize a couple of years ago in large measure for his work on spin glasses. A spin glass is a system that is frozen in a local equilibrium. It's not the global thermal equilibrium, but it's the local equilibrium. So a lot of the techniques of a conventional equilibrium statistical physics can allow you to at least formulate the mathematical issues and it's making progress on those issues that Parisi, his star, really shone. But if you think about any real computational system, you are extraordinarily far, and I mean you as in you physically, the listener, as well as the little device you're listening to this podcast through and so on and so forth, you're extraordinarily far from anything that's an approximation of an equilibrium. You are also not only changing slowly, which is another requirement of equilibrium statistical physics, that any changes are actually um, are called quasi-static. They're infinitesimally slow changes. You're changing damn fast, and so is your little device that you're listening to this through. So what all that suggests strongly is that they did not have the tools in the 20th century to actually properly address these issues. They had some great intuitive insights, but if you look at the actual physics equations, which one might have hoped exist that prove the precise details of when these intuitive insights hold, what they mean more precisely and formally and all the kinds of structure and richness that gives you a feeling of uh, being on top of things. If you do stuff like use quantum physics to analyze the hydrogen atom or something like that, it wasn't there. And there's as a result, not surprisingly, there was controversy. It, it bled over into the philosophy literature and so on and so forth. So that's where things pretty much stayed, were at the end of the 20th century. And people m- sort of moved on because they didn't see how to make any progress beyond that. Okay, now let's look to the twenty-first century. Da 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 da! Fanfare of trumpets. Other physicists came up with these brilliant insights that now forms a field that's sometimes called stochastic thermodynamics. They basically realized that there are ways to modify statistical physics to allow it to apply arbitrarily far away from thermal equilibrium with systems that are changing arbitrarily quickly. This is a still exploding field. There was a great perspective in uh, nature on this particular topic about a year ago, and it's getting many, many new results. It's still a, a newborn fresh behind, wet behind the ears and so on and so forth. But I have to say looking at it from the outside, it's somewhat of a standard thing among all science in that it's siloed. These people have constructed these amazingly powerful tools That can at least theoretically, so to speak, apply to everything from the evolution of ecosystems to financial markets, never mind to physical systems where energy is one of the big issues, which was its original birthplace. But they're all focused on things that are important, but nonetheless, things like um, uh, small biochemical issues, ligand detectors and cell walls and what's going on with operating some of the... Machinery that makes ATP and um, some experiments with quantum dots and so on. Very important stuff. Front cover of nature and so on and so forth um, several times. But, gee, it's very, let's just say, non-SFI. It's small bore. They're coming up with revolutionary science, and they are doing it within the mindset of conventional siloed scientists. So I was frying some different fish, so to speak, when I stumbled across this work. And I said, holy expletive deleted. We can now apply this to actually properly start to investigate the non-equilibrium, far from static statistical physics properties of real computers, of not these kinds of semi-formal word arguments, kinds of things that people were restricted to before. But now we can go after the Whole enchilada, the Rio McCoy, or at least start going down that path. We can, hey, there is the cliff. It's just over there. We were going straight, not getting anywhere, sort of bumping into some rocks and things. We wanted to go flying. There, there's a cliff off the left. Off to the left. Let's all jump. And that's basically how I got into this
2: <laughs> jumping. Awesome. Well, so let's jump in then. There's this, this piece, Non-Equilibrium Thermodynamics of Communication Channels. Ferita, since you're the first author on this paper, why don't you take us from David's context here and uh, tell us a little bit about... This is going to be the uh, Explain It to Me Like I'm Five section of the podcast. This piece is building on uh, work by Claude Shannon, and specifically, you know, it, it focuses on this quantity, that, the, the channel capacity. So that's, that seems like a good place to start, if you could, by laying down some of the, just the, the core concepts for this paper before we actually drive into the, the specifics of the way that the two of you are formalizing all of this and the conclusions that you come to.
0: Yeah. So maybe starting with some motivation, um why so why are we studying communication channels given everything that david said we do want to understand how how these quote living systems and that's you know a flexible definition anything from the brain to modern digital computers to you know you could even consider an ecosystem or a financial market potentially as Uh, some living system. The key is that all of these dynamic, far from equilibrium systems, they have limited information about the things that exist in their environment, the things that they're interacting with, and within themselves, the components that make up these systems have limited information about each other. And therefore, they have to compute some function, they have to be learning something, right? And if we consider that oftentimes these such systems have multiple components. These multiple components are often, all the time, continuously shuttling information amongst each other in order to compute whatever function it is they're computing. So if that's the case, well, if we look into the literature also, it's just all throughout the literature that such systems, the highest energy cost comes from the communication that is required between these components the fact that these components have limited access to information not only from their environment but also from each other um, we want to try to clarify that we see that in the brain there's Paper I think in PNAS that came out from Levy and Calvert, you know, with a title like, communication consumes 35 times more energy than computation in the human brain. And of course, you know, we can... Argue about semantics and specifics of what is communication and computation, but it is, for example, phenomenologically has also been observed in the creation of digital computers through, like, Rents rule, for example, uh, energetic cost scaling with the a number of wiring links in a digital computer, and in like a CPU and a chip, uh, scaling with the number of wiring connections in that in that computing unit and. This is also one of the main drivers behind the entire field of neuromorphic computing, which is growing hugely. So in traditional uh, computing architectures, you have what's called von Neumann computing, where you have your CPU separated from your uh, memory. Whereas what neuromorphic computing is trying to do is to reduce the communication that's required between these two units to have some memory be at the location of the computing devices themselves so that reduces the overall amount of communication required. So we have noticed that in all such computing systems communication is extremely costly and yet we don't have a proper understanding of why that is the case or what is the origin of this communication cost and also what are the details of it? What are the subtle features of communication? How how does energy scale with the amount of desired communication in a channel? So I would say we kind of touch on Shannon's work. So Claude Shannon, he started the entire field of communication theory, essentially, in his master's thesis, in which he posited and at least half-proved, informally proved, this noisy channel coding theorem. And what that says is if you have, so a communication channel consists usually of some source of information, and then that source of information gets transformed somehow through some encoding, some code book, which basically assigns sequences of symbols that come from the source n-bit sequences to some code word and that that defines a code book and so that goes through this input and the input then transfers that information through a noisy communication channel to an output and what that means is the output will sometimes have errors in what it receives if the input is trying to send A 1, the output receives sometimes with some probability a 0 instead of a 1 if we're talking binary alphabet. And then there's some decoding function in which the output takes its n-bit strings and then converts it back to what it thinks the message, the original message from the information source was. Um, And perhaps there's some feedback which then can adjust the next sequence of inputs. So what Shannon proved essentially is that for... For such a communication channel, um, you can send information at some maximum rate with negligible error. And that rate, that rate is called the channel capacity. So even with noise, you can send at some maximum rate with negligible error, even if there is noise. So that, and that is, you know, kind of striking you would assume that you have to uh, you would have to always accept some amount of error no matter what if you have a noisy channel but he proved otherwise and he proved that there's just this maximum speed of information transfer across the communication channel and then further went on to prove that this maximum rate of information transfer is equal to the mutual information between the input and the out. The maximum mutual information between the input and the output, as you vary the probability of seeing different symbols at the inputs, so the probability distribution at the input, it's equivalent to that. And and what that means is actually the implications are pretty profound. That there exists a codebook there exists in fact infinitely many codebooks that can achieve this channel capacity however in practice it has been found is extremely difficult for humans to come up with such a codebook but they exist but at least because it is a non-constructive proof that Shannon did it's not that oh look here's this codebook that gives you this channel capacity he just shows that it exists We don't quite know how to get there. But what it is useful for is that if you have an engineer that's designing some communication channel uh, and they design it to, they can calculate perhaps what the channel capacity is, assuming they can do so, which itself can be difficult. If they can design their system to get to about 90, 95% of that channel capacity, they know that they're probably not going to be able to do much better than that. And so they can just move on after that. And so, what we're now doing is what we have done so far in this work is we've uncovered this non-trivial structure that, in certain setups for communication channels, we want to know well, what is the energetic cost actually? What is the energetic cost of transmitting information down the channel, at a certain rate? And what we have found is 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 something quite interesting that, and, and I won't go into it quite yet. I'll let you perhaps ask some more questions to lead us in there. But overall, what's interesting is that it does imply that there are setups for communication channels. There is a way to perhaps tune the noise in the communication channel to achieve a minimum of heat dissipation of, in our terms, entropy production. So yeah, I can just go from there.
2: Sure. Thank you. Okay, so David, I'm curious because like two things come up for me listening to all of that. And these are tangents, maybe, but I'm curious whether you think they actually are or whether this is all pointing to something really, really fundamental. One is that what you're talking about here kind of reminds me of the way that rivers don't run straight. There seems like a link to this other thing around turbulence formation and the way that rivers they bend because you get vortical flows in water and so the minimization of friction and the role of noise in systems that we don't typically think of as computational, like a river delta, is connected to this through what your work is saying about the structure of systems and the way that they produce entropy and and dissipate things. So that's a noob question, but I'm curious. That's one thing it would be interesting to hear you speak to. And then the other thing is, David, you and uh, David Kinney, published this preprint for stochastic mathematical systems. And it strikes me that this question about the code book and there being an infinite number of codebooks that satisfy these requirements, but where are they? sounds a lot like questions that come up in astrobiology, where you say, like, look, there should be all of these different possible, amino acid sequences, but we don't see that stuff. Does it exist? Could it exist? Is this based on simply our lack of evidence or is this pointing to something about the way that the actual is a much, much smaller subset of the possible for like concrete practical reasons? And I don't know, there there seemed like there was an underground tunnel between that kind of a question and Maybe I'm just asking, maybe I'm trying to bite off too much here. But this question about the way that, you know, David talks about it says, I'm actually thinking of an earlier paper that you wrote with, with David Kinney about the math that we have, and this much larger possible ma- space of possible mathematics. So I guess what I'm really asking is, do you think that this work can kind of be generalized in either of those two directions because like a river basin is out of equilibrium or because questions about the code book are speaking to this sort of much more general question about constraints that comes up again and again in, in complex systems research and you know why it is that we seem to occupy a very narrow strip of the theoretically possible and yeah, at this point, I've thoroughly distracted people from like the actual meat of this paper. But yeah, am I making any sense at all? And if if I'm not, how am I not here? Um, it sure is a ton of issues.
1: So trying to channel my inner my Garfield, um, what, what, I, <laughs> what I think that you may have been I'm responding to. I don't know that the papers that I've done with David Kinney per se, there's a... Eon essay that I recently wrote, and especially um, an archive, which is a more technical version of it, um, an archive preprint, which David Kinney was not involved with, but which is related. There, the emphasis was on the astonishingly constrained, restricted formulations of our very thought processes, the things that others celebrate, like, for example, Our communication systems in a a broader sense, this is the way that we speak, our language, our mathematics, our most important and powerful cognitive prosthesis, cognitive crutch, the thing that has arguably allowed us to have this fantastic success of monopolizing, depending on how you count, 75% of the biomass on planet Earth and destroying it where no other creature was able to do that. This all comes from our ability with language and language has this striking character to it, all language, including mathematics, that every single set of statements in any human tongue is a finite set of finite length strings of symbols. When you read a book, that's what you're getting. And those symbols themselves are all chosen from a finite set, what's called the alphabet. So every sentence in a book is a string of a finite length of a fin- of, uh, every element in that string is an element of a finite set, namely the alphabet, and the book as a whole is only a finite number of these sentences strung one after the other. And finites of finites of finites, many people revel in the fact that We can use these to construct mathematics and arguably one might say even artistic constructions which have abilities like self-reference and oh, isn't this amazing that we just happen to have the minimal amount necessary to understand the fabric of reality is the way that they because we can have some way of capturing self-reference. They presume that that must be the fabric of reality. I react against it to that same fact that everything is finite strings or finite um, uh, symbol sets are very, very differently at how astonishingly narrow it is. You can imagine instead, people have played with what are called infinitary logic where you've got actually infinite strings, but even then the alphabets typically, though not always are finite and it's still what's called countable infinity. It's very, very different from the vortices in that river flow you were talking about, which is the real numbers is also all deterministic, all standard mathematics is deterministic. If A is true, if it's also true that A implies B, then B follows, modus ponens. That is assumed to be the case in mathematics, 100% probability always and every time that the laws of math have no randomness in them but well just perhaps they actually do and if we were to allow the possibility how that might that expand our minds so to speak and lee and if nothing else illustrate how minuscule our conceptions at present and perhaps always will be formulated as they are in terms of our simple language structures so i think that's what you are reacting to and there's also a similar issue then with you alluding to with astrobiology, which are these very strange phenomena, that there seem to be a lot of metabolic pathways that could have been exploited in life, even simple things like other amino acids, and people do not know why they are not ever exploited. Why did natural selection not come across them? Because it seems like they're quite accessible, and try to take advantage of them. And the jury is out on this. It's a, It's only recent that people have even realized this. And this isn't my work, but it is other work going on at the SFI. Most likely, it's because there are some problems that we're not currently sensitized to with those other approaches that as we explore them more, we will find those. But it's not really known. Now, both of those bodies of research of uh, unexploited metabolic pathways and the limitations of human language, and therefore of human conception of reality. Both of those are, so to speak, science rather than engineering. As we're stumbling around in the room that's already been made, and we are figuring out some of its features, and we're figuring out there's a whole bunch of things that could have been here, there could have been a whole bunch of other furniture, why are we not seeing it? Or, hey, we're just looking around the ground floor. Um, Might there be actually some levels up above other rooms in this particular dwelling? Things like that. It's already there. It's what we are confronted with when we open our eyes on birthday plus one. When we were born, you open your eyes. This is what you got, folks. And what's going on there? That's, so to speak, science. Communication theory is a body of math that can perhaps provide explanations for all of that, but it's about engineering. If you wanted to construct things, now, what with, as opposed to just trying to find them, your goal now is to try to construct them. In some cases, your challenges in trying to construct them will provide you insights into what it is that you do find out there. To give a very simple example that sort of ties back to the theme of this podcast Thermodynamics grew out of engineering where people were trying to build steam engines to drive trains across tracks to power mills and things like this. And out of that grew thermodynamics and things like the second law and the impossibility of perpetual motion machines and so on and so forth. And that has now provided an amazingly powerful tool with which people can actually or a um, flashlight, I should sp- suppose I should say, by which people can use to look around this room that we find ourselves in because we these are universal engineering constraints. We know that they must apply to whatever it was that constructed all these other pieces of furniture to really keep abusing this metaphor <laughs> past its <laughs> expiration date. <laughs> so it's in that vein that communication theory, and in particular potentially the thermodynamic aspects of it, becomes so important for us to be able to understand this room. It's very important for us to be able to design more efficient devices, and that's what all the original motivation was. But especially if there are what appear to be these deep fundamental restrictions and what their physical thermodynamic implications might be, that then would be consequential in a way that goes far beyond your iPhone 25, what are going to be the limits on um, what its capabilities are in terms of getting by without being recharged or something like that. Instead, the fundamental nature of communication that grew out of engineering and its thermodynamic aspects might actually be able to tell us things like, well, it's not just an iPhone. It's rather any computational entity anywhere in all of this physical universe. So it might even, who knows, have something to say about metabolic pathways and so on and so forth. So that's the 40,000 feet as we're coming down to the Mike Garfield Regional Airport. (laughs) (laughs) Um, But then at the last minute we see that, oh, um, it looks like the um, ground control tower there at the airport is having some problems. So we're just gonna divert to this neighboring airport. Which is a little bit closer to the the original theme of the podcast. So Claude Shannon, which like a bunch of other twentieth century people, I sometimes half and just hazard the guess that they must have been aliens because their minds are just so far beyond what I can imagine doing. But he sat down and said, Okay, I've got a what's called a noisy communication channel. What in the world does that even mean? Going back to that five year old. It's a wire. It's a copper wire, or it's just the ether that we're sending some radio waves across. It's something that's between me and you, between my mouth and your ears. There's a communication channel. In that case, it's the air. There's noise in that communication channel. In this case, it's the very, very slight sounds of traffic coming through the window and so on and so forth. What that noise means is that what's going to be hitting your ear with some probability is not the same mellifluence, beautiful, dulcet, well-chosen <laughs> prose that was emitted from my particular mouth. Okay? So um, in that communication channel, the very, very fortunate air that is right next to my mouth, that's the <laughs> input, and the rather l- little bit less jazzed air that's next to your ears, that's the output of the communication channel. Your brain, it's what's called a decoder, and my brain, that's the encoder. So here's the way it works. This is precisely the way Claude Shannon thought about things, by the way. <laughs> so I come up in my head for my nefarious reasons, a message that I want to get into your consciousness. The only thing I've got is this noisy channel. So what do I do? What I do is I use a code book. I take that message I want to convey and I translate it into a string. There's this finite length strings again, just like in all of our language. That string can be very, very long. It can be a real long-winded soliloquy like this particular monologue that I've been using to try to convey to you the depths of my brilliance and insight um, during this podcast, as an example. And so Shannon realized, well, hey, if we make that string with which David is trying to convey this message to Mike be long enough Um, and there's enough redundancy, then we can actually lower the effective probability of error. That yes, instantaneously, so to speak, there might be a substantial probability of error in um, Mike's ear not getting what my mouth spat out into the ether. But if instead Mike gets to see David be saying a whole long list of things, now it might be that there's actually a greater probability of him not being completely mistaken, of him not thinking David said zero when David said one, it's gonna be much more accurate. So Shannon said, okay, let's take it to the limit and try to say that this code word, it's called in the vernacular, it's the translation of a code word into a long string of symbols. Let it get very, very long. If it gets too long, then the rate at which David's actually gonna be conveying messages falls to the floor. Sure, yeah, he got one message across with almost no probability of error, but it took him the whole damn podcast to do it. This is not very efficient. (laughs) Let's see if there's actually what is the greatest rate. If we want him to be able to get the messages across with vanishingly low probability of error through some code book, through some language, what's the greatest rate he would be able to do so given the fact that, well, he's got to go through that bottleneck of that noisy channel. And this is the problem that Shannon posed to himself. I would like to think that it almost broke him to figure out the answer, but probably now he figured out while he was playing with his rubber duckies in the bathtub one evening, most likely. (laughs) But basically what he showed was I cannot actually construct a code book, but I can prove that there's an infinite number of code books. In fact, almost every random code book, if it's long enough, we'll have properties that I can exploit to actually come up with a formula for this thing called the channel capacity, which is a function of the noise in the channel. And that channel capacity is the maximal rate. If you were to use one of these codebooks, which I, Claude Shannon, have now proven exists, even though I can't quite give you one of them, well, if you were to use one of these, then you'll be able to actually get the um, messages across at the rate that gets all the way up to the channel capacity. And so that's the best you can do. And even though that was an engineering solution, that applies everywhere in reality. And so therefore, it's actually a very, very powerful flashlight we can use when we're looking around this room. That is the amazing thing. To this day, People do not have general purpose code books that actually can achieve in broad sort of situations challenge channel coding theorem of the capacity. But we know for this reason that the capacity is the crucial feature. And so in this project with Farida, what we're trying to say is, okay, if you'll notice everything that David was just talking about there, in that. Athena out of my head in one fell swoop, it's a chapter of an amazing textbook, that in all of that drivel, there wasn't any mention of physics. It was all abstract in math land. Well, if we now try to instantiate that in terms of physical systems, does that start to then tell us, well, why is it perhaps that communication among the components of computers is so absurdly expensive thermodynamically? Basically, what is going on underneath those fascinating comments that Vijay was putting forth there
2: in his particular article? And that's what we're trying to do. Awesome. So, again, maybe I'm abusing this analogy, but again, if you're thinking about literalizing communication channels and channels through which other things flow, you know, talking about Mm. No, you don't want to do that? Mm -mm. (laughs) Okay, because... It looks the same, but it's a completely different creature. Okay, because when you're talking about increasing temperature and increasing signal rate, it does seem like whether the water actually stays in the...
1: The water is not actually being used as a communication channel. Nobody's trying to create vortices of a certain sort and send them down it to then be decoded on the other end it's rather chaotic processes on their own. They're just doing their own thing. So it's got noise, and it's actually got a directionality to it, but there's nothing about it where there's really a transmitter and a receiver and any sense of an optimized code book mm. that's, that's going on. So it's not at the level at which this particular project is trying to investigate things.
2: Okay. Well then, let's land at the right airport. I feel like I'm gonna still be banging my head against the wall with this after we wrap, but I'll, we can not waste people's time. So Farita, tell me a little bit about the way that you are formalizing this, like the constraints, for instance, how coupling between input and output is non-reciprocal, input is set exogenously, external to the system, et cetera. And then from the model building, now we can finally get into your results and i'd love to yeah so if if you can kind of unpack us as we enter the house there that'd be great
0: yeah sure so um to hit on some of the points of the setup we can start with the setup of the of the model of the communication channel we tried to be as true to shannon's original model of a communication channel as possible while also paying heed to what one might expect in real communication channels. So number one, yes, the input is set exogenously. What we're actually trying to figure out here is the thermodynamics of copying. What are the thermodynamic costs of a message appearing accurately at point B when it has been transmitted from point A? So in that sense. So therefore, we don't really care how or what set the the messages at the input. So in that sense, we're kind of, we are black boxing away the information source. And rather, we're making use of one of the conclusions of uh, Shannon's noisy channel coding theorem, which is that essentially, intuitively, what it tells you is that all of these infinite code books that are very hard for us to find that, that what they do is at the input, right as it's about to be sent to the through the noisy channel, it makes it look as if you're receiving independent samples, identically taken samples from a distribution that maximizes the mutual information between the input and the output. So the input is set exogenously, so we don't care about the details of that. All we do is we set the input to a certain distribution so that the channel can be said to be running at its capacity. And of course, this mutual information, this channel capacity also depends on the amount of noise in the channel. So that's one part of it. The non-reciprocity between the input and the output is just, again, staying true to a communication channel that the output state changes depending on the input state, but the input state, its dynamics is not affected by the output state. That's all that means. And so the way that we set it up is that The noise in the channel could actually come from potentially multiple sources. And what I specifically show in the simulations, of the results of the simulations I'll talk about, is that, let's say you have two independent sources of noise in the channel. They can be formalized as thermal reservoirs, so they have some temperature, but that temperature corresponds to the amount of noise. So the higher the temperature of a particular noise source, the higher the probability of error. Right. So let's say you have two independent sources of noise in this channel so that the output can be affected by either one, its, trans- its state transitions can be affected by either one. What we find is if we fix the temperature of one of those reservoirs, one of those sources of noise, and we vary, we sweep the, the temperature of the other one through some range... We find well obviously we're changing the channel capacity because that depends on the amount of noise, but that changes monotonically with the amount of noise that with the temperature in the second source of noise, second I'll just call it reservoir from now on, in the second reservoir. However, the entropy production or the heat heat dissipation of the channel of communication in the channel is non-monotonic. So at very low temperatures you have a, a high entropy production, high amount of heat dissipation, and as you increase that temperature, it goes through some minimum, and then as you increase the temperature further, you again increase the entropy production or the heat dissipation. So this non-monotonicity of the entropy production or the heat dissipation coupled with the monotonicity of the channel capacity with the temperature of the second reservoir, that is a really striking result because that implies that If I want to send information down a channel, then if I want to minimize the amount of energy I use to do that, I really should create that channel according to this specific level to tune the noise sources so that we can achieve this minimum of energy dissipation. And then that goes on to imply In the idealized scenario, if you have a bunch of independent channels and you're running them all in parallel, of course, you have to be careful in actual engineering, if you were to actually engineer this, how you actually split your information among those channels. But assuming that you can run them all at their capacity, this implies that it would be more efficient to send information at a specific lower rate across multiple channels than to run at a high rate using one channel. And I mean energetically efficient, thermodynamically efficient. And, and I won't go too much in the details of that because it, it really has to be worked out very, you know, to a T to, uh, to actually say something about the, the ing- how to engineer a communication channel or a set of communication channels to achieve that. But, you know, it, it, this is good because it, it at least is some intuitive theoretical heading, gives us a heading towards what we have observed already in both biological and artificially created communication channels. For example, there, a brain region or two brain regions don't have just a single neuronal pathway between them. They have a multitude of them, a very large multiplicity of neural pathways between any two given regions in the brain. At the same time, the gold standard in all of our wireless communication systems for cellular uh, service uses multiplexing, which again makes use of this multiple channel effect. So yeah, those, those are the results which we've found in our continuing to try to expand upon and see what are the exact limits and what kind of scenarios. Can you have like more than two sources of noise, blah, blah, blah. So we're checking all of that now.
2: Awesome. So this Goldilocks level of noise, this seems to fly in the face of, seems like a kind of like a commonly held conviction that in general, you want to minimize the amount of noise in systems, that you get more efficiency with less noise. And David, this is a topic that came up in an exchange of letters on the role of noise in collective intelligence that you had with David Krakauer and Daniel Kahneman and Olivier Saboni, Cass Sunstein. Again, I want to check with you that I'm not making an unreasonable analogical leap here, but it seems like there's a link between there being a Goldilocks level of noise in a communications channel and the implication that you are gonna work with that by multiplexing communication channels. And then this other thing, which is a bit different, but that collective intelligence benefits in some way from there being noise in the system, actually harvests noise. So I'm curious if you can kind of disambiguate this for me. In what ways are these kind of different things? Um, Yeah. So the book by
1: Danny and Cass was fine as far as it goes. It was about how people in human societies tend to worry about biases, which in the statistics sense means that I have a tendency to operate in a certain way other than the, what is the average and that there's this is a huge concern in many many forms in much of current sociopolitical political discourse i suppose their point was that noise can also be very very problematic and for example it's well known that giving judges discretion and things that judges they're human and therefore they're got all kinds of bad characteristics Something that people actually, I think, tend to forget when they try to um, uh, push away from standardized tests and so on is that the alternative is to have human judges and humans are pretty piss poor at this kind of a thing. Um, But in any case, so for example, there are judges who just depending on the time of day will have a 50% different conviction rate for essentially the same kind of evidence or give massively different sentences if it's before lunch or just after lunch and all these kinds of things. And that's all forms of noise. And Danny and Cass were making the very um, legitimate point that people should be more aware of this op-ed writers um, at all of our and other social media, I suppose, flame wars, that they should be um, concerned about these things as well. And David and I, our response is basically, well, yeah, sure, of course. And power to you, and this is an important point to make, but far more than baby with bathwater, don't throw the elephant out with the bathwater. Noise, in general, as a concept, plays a huge number of other roles. It's a much more highly valence, many different features to the concept of noise and its manifestations than just judges being humans and therefore noisy, and that's not a good thing when you have people sitting in little judgment of one another. For example, things like Monte Carlo algorithms, going back to some of my previous work, Monte Carlo algorithms of this amazing way of using noise to escape the cursor dimensionality. If I'm doing a search in a D-dimensional space, in general the same search problem, its difficulty grows exponentially with the dimension D. In Monte Carlo search instead, it actually goes down with the square root of the number of samples you've taken so far in your search process, independent of the dimensionality. It circumvents the the, uh, dimension and the curse of dimensionality. That's why many high dimensional optimization problems are done with Monte Carlo rather than trying to do it by some uh, more kind of an exhaustive search procedure, what's called quadrature. In other examples, in computer science theory, it's not actually known yet for sure. For a while, though, people were fairly convinced that in terms of the the computational complexity theory, that having random algorithms would actually give you a benefit of having deterministic algorithms. So there are these kinds of benefits to having noise in general. Certainly, um, noise plays a fundamental role in natural selection. If it was all deterministic, you wouldn't be able to do it et cetera, et cetera. In the case of the communication channels, the work that Frieda's is looking at, it's a more nuanced kind of a thing in that we're talking about different kinds of noise. As she very rightly emphasizes, we've got to be very careful in terms of the mathematization of the, all of this. But what it appears like is the following. If I give you, Michael, a set of communication channels, and I'm not even gonna to try to figure out what this might mean about you're talking to multiple people at once or something like that, but I'm sure you can insert the proper narrative. And you've got a message that you want to send, and one of them's got an information capacity that suffices to send it. The other ones are noisier, they have smaller information capacities, and you might naively think we'll just go with the most efficient one and be done with. What we are seem to be finding is that in some situations, there are major thermodynamic advantages to not going exactly at the capacity. You might want to go under the capacity, and the other channels, you might want to even run them noisier beyond their capacity. The the details have yet to be figured out, and as points out, part of what's so intriguing about it is the the, um, apparent analogy with things like multiplexing within the human brain where there are many, many channels, there are many different kinds of neurons that seem to be actually conveying very similar things, but they are doing through, through very different media. And it's not clear why some people, like in the articles by Vijay that you were um, pointing to, and, and, and other fellow travelers, are hypothesizing that information theory has something to do with it. Information theory, as that term is commonly used in all of the sciences, frankly, outside of engineering is the introductory chapter for the freshman textbook. It is not Shannon coding theory. It's not about code books. It's not really about information capacity. It's got nothing to do with the full on richness. People will love to talk about callback library divergence, mutual information, entropy. You'll see it all over the place. That ain't information theory, folks, any more than something like being able to solve a linear algebra equation is calculus. It's just the very, very teeny elementary aspects of it. There is a richness of it that communication engineers, what's called coding theory, is all about. And that is front and center with my being able to communicate from my mouth to your ear. And we are finding evidence that that same mathematical richness and depth is also playing a role in the thermodynamics of communication and why there can be benefits to doing things multiplexing And yet, other kinds of benefits to noise that, of course, were not at all considered by Danny and Cass, et cetera, in their book about the um, pointing out, emphasizing some of the problems in certain contexts of noise.
2: All right. Well, we're already way late into your next scheduled meeting with each other so i don't want to press this too much further but one more quick question because we have carlos gershenson here as a visiting scholar on sabbatical and in his talk that he gave recently here he mentioned a 2015 paper he did with dirk helbing when slower is faster looking at kind of like traffic uh, logistics public transport etc. And at least in the example systems that they give in this paper, there's a lot of overlap with the kind of example systems you give in the intro to yours. And so it strikes me that what the two of you are converging on when you talk about, you know, sometimes there being a benefit to running lower than, than channel capacity is, again, that both of your papers are kind of pointing to this same truth, that maybe one of the reasons the brain is So good at what it does is connected to the observation that people have made that the kind of thinking that brains seem really good at is different from the kind that we see von Neumann machines excelling at. And that part of it is that brains are very cheap and slower than these other systems. And so that in closing, I would love to hear you speak to this question of speed and intentionally slowing down. Or if not this, what do you think the light from this paper shines on questions about creating more thermodynamically efficient computers? I mean, yours and his seem related in that way. Okay, it's an interesting connection you're seeing there. So what Dirk and Carlos did
1: in that paper, loosely speaking, was things like this. I've got nothing to do with multiplexing, or at least there are large parts of it that don't involve multiplexing. I've just got a single lane of traffic, though actually usually this arises in um, cases where you have multiple lanes of traffic. But the idea is quite simple. If I were to lower the speed limit, the total throughput might actually go up. And that's true in many physical systems. In the case of traffic, it's not hard to see what's going on. If you lower the speed limit, then you can have a nonlinear improvement in the intercar spacing. If you and I are both driving much more slowly, I can be much closer to you with the same margin of safety. And that can simply have the effect that the total number of cars per unit time through the system is faster. So you run into the same kind of things in fluid mechanics. If you try to push water through some small channel too fast, you're gonna cause it essentially to block up. You slow it down, and now all of a sudden, you'll be able to get much more water going through that channel.
2: I hate to say this, but this is totally the point I was trying to get at earlier. Well, there you go. I'm catching up with you, dude. <laughs> I'm catching up with you. We were both trying to get there too fast. Maybe. Yeah. Um,
1: so that's the kind of phenomenon going on there. In a certain sense, the mathematics is, is kind of interesting what you're getting at here, because there's many instances in the sciences where to what appear to be disparate phenomena actually are being governed by similar mathematics. And so, for example, in communication theory, there's a particular problem called min-cut, max-flow min-cut, a class of problems which is very much related to this issue of actually getting things through a pipeline. And communication theory, coding theory, when you talk about going through a network, runs up against these issues Full on, full bore. The kinds of issues that Farida is looking at though right now are much more like a link on that particular network. And the, some of the kinds of things that Carlos and Dirk were highlighting were links on different kinds of networks. But where there would be a very striking similarity would be if you were to take the uh, kinds of links in his system, particular into a network, the properties of flow through that network Comparing it to, in Farida's case, where the individual links are instead going to be things like, well, electrons going down a wire, as opposed to cars going down a speed limit. So in Farida's case, there's not going to be a safety distance between successive electrons that's going to be giving you the benefit. But in both cases, when you start to go into the regime of networks, and since both of them have to do with flow, moving through a system where there are networks, you're going to see that the mathematics is going to be very similar. So that's a large part of where there is going to be that commonality. All
2: right. Well, we're way over time. (laughs) Farita, I want to give you the last word here. Just in closing, if you have anything that you feel we ought to mop up before this ends, or if you just want to point people into the bold future of unanswered questions.
0: Yeah, well, we're going to be putting out an archive on this in the next few weeks, so people will have something to look at to match up to all this. I think we did some good mopping up, but perhaps I can talk a little bit to how this fits in with the rest of you know where we're going next things like that you know so we talked a lot about how communication is extremely important for for computation and this is what this project is really trying to get at is well what what are the actual communication costs and as simple as it is, the the model that we're looking at, just two nodes, you can think of it as two nodes in a network, there's information flowing from this node A to node B, we're trying to understand the energetic cost of that and the subtleties of the function, the mathematic, mathematical function of how that energy varies with the amount of noise and the types of noise across the channel. Well, now we can expand what, what happens if you have multiple nodes connected together in some sort of network. How does the network configuration affect the energetic costs of communication from point A to point Z? in a network of many, many more nodes, particularly We've seen clues in the literature that there are certain features of the network, if you talk about graph properties, such as modularity or hierarchy of how these components are connected to each other. Do they form clusters and communities? That's what modularity is. Are they organized in a certain tree-like fashion that could be connected to hierarchy? How much does that give us in terms of energetic benefits for just communication. Again, just copying a message straight down the chain, like banana phone or whatever that game is. <laughs> so that that's kind of where we're going next. And we're really excited to see what the results are from there and how we can exploit the, our most recent results to connect us into that future.
2: Awesome. Thanks to you both for taken so much time to unpack all of this stuff. I know our listeners appreciate it. I certainly appreciate it. And I hope we didn't cut too much into your next conversation.
0: <laughs> Thanks for giving us the communication channel by which to communicate these results.
2: <laughs> Everybody's going to listen to this one on half speed.
0: <laughs>
2: <laughs> Thank you for listening. Complexity is produced by the Santa Fe Institute, a nonprofit hub for complex systems science located in the high desert of New Mexico. For more information, including transcripts, research links, and educational resources, or to support our science and communication efforts, visit santafe.edu podcast.